Thank you so much for that moving intro to our final segment, Colin, and thank you to Pastor Eric and Pastor Colin and the elders for having me. And I'm not done yet. I preach tomorrow, so we'll see how this goes uh, and if they have me back tomorrow. But seriously, what a joy to be with you. Thank you, friends, for coming from across Texas. I won't try to do Texas geography, but uh, thank you for coming from different locales uh, near here. So that's a, a blessing to me and I trust to others. Uh, and uh, as I said, I will be at the book table after this session and I will sign books, which lowers their value, but nonetheless, <laughs> we shall do it. Why are we here? What on earth is happening to America? This is a question that many of us have asked in different ways in recent months and years. And there's a lot of different responses we could give to this set of questions. But as we wrap up, I want to kind of take us back to where we started. And I want to answer this question as follows. Neo-paganism is spreading in America. New paganism. That's what neo means. New paganism is spreading. 120 years ago at Princeton, Abraham Kuyper said this. Do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be until the end. Christianity and paganism, the idols or the living God. He said this on his lectures in Calvinism, and his insight, I think, is invaluable. What do I mean by this term, paganism? We're going to talk about it in this session I want us to understand in a broad sense that we're not just up against what we call the sexual revolution. We're up against something much bigger, something much more ancient, something called neo-paganism. In this final session in the Resolved Conference 2020, we're going to do a few quick things. We're going to look at paganism from Romans 1. We're going to then analyze our culture and we're going to conclude with a battle plan for the church in these evil days. My hope is that this will be a somewhat shorter session for you, ending on an application note after you have taken in a fair bit of content thus far in these sessions. So my hope is that, though we have quite a bit to do here, that this will nonetheless be a little bit more breathable session and send you out in hope uh, trusting in God's grace to be salt and light in this world. Go with me, if you would, to Romans 1. Uh, let's, let's look at several verses here. Let's look at Romans 1, 18 to 27. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What the Apostle Paul is giving us here is an outline of a culture in absolute rebellion against God. Note several things in this section of scripture that we read. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What this means, friends, is that wrath is not just a future, terrifying future reality. Wrath is actually being revealed now in the present time from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, though it may seem like sin alone is prospering in this world, in this time, it is not the case. God is already communicating to humanity that he has wrath against sin. He is angry at sin. And this is just divine anger. This is an unhinged uh, heavenly father kind of anger, as if that's a possible category. It's not. This is just divine anger against all, look, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Even as I was talking earlier in the session on womanhood about no righteous deed through the power of the Spirit escaping God's attention, there's a double truth here in Scripture. No godly act, thought, meditation, prayer is missed by God. None of it. Everything you do to fight for holiness by God's grace, by God's power, he sees. Everything you do that is godly, he will reward. But the other side of that coin is that nothing that is wicked is missed by God. It may feel that way. It may look that way. Why do the wicked prosper, the psalmist asks. This is an ancient feeling. This isn't a new thing in America as America darkens. This is an ancient reality. The church has normally found itself in times of great difficulty. But mark this. It's not just that there is a lot of sin out there and the church feels pressed in upon, as it does, as you do, as I do. It is that God is seeing all of it. And he is already revealing wrath from heaven now against it. The consequence, friends, the consequences of sin are already being reaped in this world. Not in the ultimate sense, right? Not in eternal damnation for sin, terrifying as that is, justly. But in all sorts of ways, people reap what they sow, don't they? You know, I am not one who tries to put a lot of effort into reading the state and fate of nations. I, I just, I, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what stage we're at in, in the evolution, so to speak, of a country, the state of a nation. But I do know that it certainly feels, to me at least, like we are reaping what we sow in a country like this. As a country 
turns away from God, and no, America was never some sort of new Israelite nation. Don't, don't read me as saying that. Nonetheless, as a country turns away from the truth of God and the grace of God and rejects God openly, as in Romans 1, as in what Paul is talking about, as in what was happening in Rome in Paul's day, he's trying to encourage Christians, actually, in this letter, isn't he? He's mapping what is happening around them. What takes place is that, again, people reap what they sow. Ungodliness causes an, a real effect. And I wonder, friends, if what we have coming in days ahead is going to be God bringing an early form of judgment against this nation in days ahead. In other words, there may be the experience of the church where, where we are not perfect, but we are watching God bring about an early form of judgment around us in increasing measure. People seriously losing their minds, nations ceasing to function, wickedness unleashed in, in a culture and society, effectively no one to stop it, the family breaking down, lies being taught, we're going to talk about this in a minute, in schools and public settings. That, what I want you to understand, that is not just that which occasions wrath. That is wrath. When God gives a people over to sin, you see, the, you see the point? He's letting them experience a first little foretaste of wrath. It's not just that judgment could come for that. Oh, we got to get this turned around. We need revival. We got to turn this sucker around. It's that judgment is now here. It's that it's now here. It's now starting here. It certainly has started in other nations and other societies, among other peoples in past days. By our unrighteousness in our natural state, all of us, we suppress the truth. No one is naturally an atheist, verse 19 teaches, because what can be known about God is plain to us. God has shown it to them. Paul makes it doubly clear. It's plain, verse 19, God has shown it. He's directly shown his existence to everybody. No one is without excuse. No one is actually philosophically confused about the existence and excellence of God. We see it. We see it plainly. We just suppress it. We all have a natural suppression capacity in us. When truth comes, we are naturally adept at suppressing it which is a serious thing for us to contemplate, isn't it? And when we, even as Christians, think about truth that has come to us, words that we needed to hear, call for repentance in our life, whether, whether small or, or bigger, we can readily recognize this instinct, can't we? We can see how we suppress truth. I can see how I suppress truth. This is the natural human instinct. His invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived, verse 20, clearly perceived in the things that have been made, in the world that God has formed. No one has an excuse. The answer to the question, does anyone out there have an excuse because they're far away from a Christian church or they've never had a missionary come to them is no. No one is without excuse. No one has an excuse. Because, verse 21, we knew God. It doesn't mean we knew God savingly, but they knew God, they knew of his existence but they did not honor him or give thanks to him. That is so 
interesting. God is deserving of infinite honor. And God is deserving of unending thanks. But what does sinful humanity stubbornly, angrily, bitterly not give God honor and thanks? The people around us, again, are not incidental unbelievers. Just like us, before we were converted by God's grace, they are intentionally not honoring God, not giving thanks to Him. Don't underestimate depravity. Can I say that word to you? Don't underestimate it. There's a feeling in evangelical circles, evangelical missiology and evangelism, this is alive and well in Baptist circles, there's a feeling that if we would just get our act together and start evangelizing and start living right the way we should, America's problems and the world's problems, name them, would be solved. Now, we could all bat at a higher batting percentage, I will admit, okay? All of us could do better. We're all striving, we're all supposed to, to bear more of the fruits of the Spirit, not less, not fewer, right? So let that be said. I just don't want us to underestimate depravity either. Because this is a pretty serious portrait of it. The unbelieving heart is desperately wicked, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. There's no one who does right. Romans 3. You should seek to be salt and light in your neighborhood, in your community, school, workplace, whatever it may be, family. You should. You should pray for that end. You should pray for conversion around you by God's grace. But you just have to know that unbelievers are desperately wicked and that depravity is no small thing. I've experienced this in some forms where I have lived. I won't say where or who or anything like this because we're being put on record on video and that sort of thing. But man, my wife and I have tried in past days to be a light in our setting and, and, and we've been spurred on by you know reports of Christians who have been uh, evangelistic in, the, in their community and they've seen major results and their door is always open and these sorts of things and we're like okay we have our own rhythm we're not necessarily going to be that but we're going to try to be salt and light sometimes it doesn't go well have you ever had this experience are we the only ones depravity is real friends this is real the only category in evangelism and missiology is not what you do there's another category it's called total depravity it's called human sinfulness it's called no one having excuse and not honoring him as God or giving thanks to him, becoming futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Are we underestimating and underplaying sin? I would wager a good number of us are. And I would wager actually randomly that there's a fair bit of guilt and shame out there among here and among Christians more broadly because of this sense that if we would just get it done, everything would be put to rights. No, it wouldn't. We can always grow. We can always do more to evangelize and disciple. Don't mishear me. But even if we did, we can't unfall the world. The world is fallen, and the human heart is wicked. And this text in Scripture is probably the deepest exploration of that wickedness and that darkness. So, your neighbor, try to be a witness to him, her, them, whoever they are. Try. Try to be a light in your family. Pray. 
Know that God may well choose to save gloriously out of the blue. Know that he may also not choose to do that. And you may actually have to endure the bitterness of living in a Romans 1 culture and society, which we are. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, verse 22, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Verse 25 will go on to say, therefore God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The fundamental problem with all of us is not our behavior. That's what evangelicals have focused a lot on in years past. Change your behavior. Stop doing that. Once you stop doing that, you're basically good. The modern form of this is that you can even stop committing certain sinful actions, but still retain a sinful identity. You can be a transgender Christian. You can be a gay Christian. You can be other categories along those lines. That sort of approach does not at all address the actual root of sin, which is the lust of the heart. The lust of the heart. That's what creates sinful behavior. Sinful behavior is not its own thing. A vindictive word spoken in the heat of a conflict is not its own thing. Clicking on pornography when you know you shouldn't is not its own thing. It's not just a click. Cheating in different fields of life is not its own thing. Lying, little white lies as we call them, they're not their own thing. Gluttony is not its own thing. Covetousness, jealousy, envy, anger, not their own thing. They proceed from the lusts, the passions of the heart. That is where sin roots. Do you want to kill sin? Kill or be killed? Yes. You want to kill sin. You have to kill sin at the level of desire, not just action. It's not just stop going there. In other words, it's not just stop saying that. You should. Please do stop going there and saying that. <laughs> it's also stop desiring that. That is when, here's another agricultural metaphor. I'm in danger here. But uh, that is where you do not simply chop the weed off at the ground, right? You can say, kids, it's time to do a little weeding. Uh, we need to help out around the house, help your mom with the gardening here for 20 minutes or so. So let's pull some weeds. What does a child naturally do? They naturally break the weed off at the level of the ground. Yes, this isn't because they're an idiot. It's because they don't know that the weed is actually eight inches down in the ground. Yes. And what does, break, what does breaking the weed off at the ground level actually do? It seems, I, I'm not a scientist, as should be well. Uh, clear now, but it seems like it causes the weed to even grow back stronger. Okay? I have some verbal confirmation from that. Thank you. <laughs> the way to get the weed is only to do what? Get dirt in your fingernails, do the hard work, take longer, messy, and get into the ground and get the root of the weed. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about the root of the weed not in the behavior. The behavior is just from the ground up. The vengeful words, the lustful actions, the covetous desires, the covetous thinking. Down below is actually where the sin is rooted. 
If you have a lust problem, you have to address it at the level of desire. You're desiring the wrong thing. And thus you need to pray for God to give you new desires. You need to fill your mind with the things of God, with scripture. You need to meditate and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ more than anything in this world. And you need to ask God to give you new desires, not just ask God to change your behavior. But people all around us are not only doing bad stuff, they have lusts of their hearts that are totally unchecked. Unbelievers are not in any form addressing the lust of the heart. At best, they're addressing behavior. And we're thankful, hey, 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 in common grace terms, we're thankful people stop bad, bad habits, right? We'd not rather they do more evil than less. <laughs> but this is where the uniqueness and the radicalness of the gospel starts to click in, I think. When you realize unbelievers aren't going to address this at all. They may stop doing that. They may stop smoking or something. They, they can in natural terms. You, you certainly can. You can reform your behavior to a significant degree in human terms, but you can't kill the lusts of the heart outside of the grace of God. And that is just what the grace of God is for. This isn't bonus Christianity. Bonus round. Like, oh, if some of you want to do this, let me talk to you about the lust of the heart. This is what Christianity is called to be. It's called to address not just behavior, but the, the weed at its deepest root, which means your hands are dirty. There's dirt under your fingernails. This is the work that is actually involved in a marriage. Not just talking nicely and politely about you know, once, once a month, we, uh, we had a little thing we had to work out. No, you're two redeemed people. Yes, you're a new creation. That's your identity. Your identity is not half in your sin, half in your new creation. You are a new creation. And yet, we all stumble in many ways, as James says. And so, in our marriages, we got to, it's not that we need to be rude to each other. Please don't hear that. But we need to be a little bit impolite in terms of our sin. We need to address it with our children. We need to address sin carefully and, and in a way that they can understand in these terms. It's not just that they should stop doing bad things. They should stop doing bad things. They need to know that they have lusts in their heart that are wicked. They need help with that. This isn't bonus round Christianity, friends. It sounds like it. It's not bonus round. It's basic biblical killing of sin. And now will be my final point for us in this little section. Verse 25, they exchanged, all this means, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For a lie. Any people group that turns away from God is building upon a lie and it becomes that group becomes an exercise in lie upon lie upon lie in this culture increasingly here are some of the lies okay that we have exchanged the truth for there is no creator were the products of evolution. We've, talk, we've talked about a bunch of these things already. There's no divine design. 
So there's, there's nothing in the world that's been designed and ordered. There's no creation order. It's all just randomness. There's therefore no male or female. There's no male or female. There are people who have certain anatomies, but there's no meaning to male or female. There's no script for sexuality. There's no um, plan, the Genesis 2 plan that we've been talking about at some length. That doesn't exist. The Bible's a book of fairy tales and myths. There's no script for you. There's no script for your life. There's no script for your kids. There's not a plan where a, where a man leaves father and mother, and as God allows and leads, takes a wife for himself, and the two become one flesh. That script is gone. Now, in this society, live it up. Do what you want. Travel. Have experiences. Have fun. Don't be constrained. There's no script for your life. Just endlessly drift through your 20s and your 30s. There's no script. It's a lie. There's no God-designed family with a father, mother, and children. And I am using these terms intentionally. And if you've been paying very close attention, you've heard I have barely used the term parent. Using the term parent does not put you in the spiritual penalty box, okay, uh, for the next six weeks or something like that. That's uh, for lockdown, uh, by the way. No, that's not what I mean. I do mean that I think there's a sharper set of terms you can use than gender-neutral parent. Now, are there some duties that overlap between fathers and mothers? Absolutely. But wherever you can, here's my encouragement. Use the term father and the term mother. Push back. Push back in an Orwellian sense, positively, against the rebranding of language such that we all embrace gender amorphous androgyny, whether we even know it or not. It's not that the term parent can never be used by Christians. I'm sure I've used it in my writing or that sort of thing. It is to say, though, we need to be intentional here, friends. This counter-revolution that we are launching in enemy territory is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take extreme attention and focus. And language matters. I am not the parent to my three children in Kansas City. I am their father. My wife is not the parent to my three children. She is their mother. There is a God-designed family. Families are not whatever we want them to be. Families are what God made them to be. The family is the first institution God makes. He makes it before the nation of Israel. He makes it before the government. He makes it before the church. The family is the first institution. The family is of paramount importance in creational design terms. Now, we know that the local church in the New Testament comes into focus as the institution of institutions, and yet it does not do away with the natural family. In fact, leadership in the church, that which Christ himself dies for, is predicated upon godly family leadership. So the local church rises to preeminence in the biblical storyline, and yet the natural family, better termed the nuclear family, is never eclipsed. It never goes away. It's the first institution. It's a lie, therefore, that there's no God-designed family. But that's a lie that's everywhere, as we've talked about. Next lie, there's no savior, lord, or end to the cosmos. 
in a postmodern worldview, in a pagan worldview, there's no Savior, there's no Lord, there's no ought. You just live how you want to live. You find your authentic self, you be true to who you are, and the rest of us affirm you. That's it. That's how you become truly happy. That's a lie. That's a lie. And lastly, in this worldview that is amorphous, but yet everywhere, <laughs> there's no judge of evil. Mm. Even Christians don't want there to be a judge of evil, professing Christians. Andy Stanley wrote a book a few years ago where he repeated the very tired trope that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament being brutal and wrathful, the God of the New Testament being gentle and accepting and loving. The God of the New Testament, Revelation, what we read a few minutes ago, had read to us, is absolutely the judge of evil. He goes through no change in the biblical storyline. He is the judge of evil in the Old Testament. He is the judge of evil to an unprecedented eternal degree in the New Testament. There is a judge. Humanity Secular humanity, our culture, our society, again, I repeat myself, is lying. There is a judge. He is a judge who sees all. Now, it's not the case that he is only judge, acts only in that capacity. He is also infinitely loving and creates a people for himself, a people he should judge in the Old Testament, a people that repeatedly turns away from him, and yet that he repeatedly forgives. And then he creates, in the blood of his son, a church in the New Testament. And it is a people that repeatedly sins against him, but that he repeatedly forgives. So it is not the case that our God has only one attribute. It is the case that our God is both infinitely holy, and thus the judge of evil, and infinitely loving. All this body of lies that I just spelled out, we can call neo-paganism neo-paganism. It's the view in the simplest form that there is no God, everything is made of the same stuff, matter is eternal as Peter Jones the theologian has argued, and so there's no category for sin. As I've said, there's no male and female. This is all a neo-pagan worldview. This is what we are up against in our time. This is, I believe, in one form or another, the major competitor to Christianity in this season of our existence. Francis Schaeffer saw this coming. Francis Schaeffer, four decades ago, wrote this about evangelicals. They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally, abortion but they have not seen this as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview, that is through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. That shift is toward neo-paganism. What's the takeaway of this? The takeaway is that the people around us are not okay in many cases. They're not doing great. 
they don't agree with a lot of what we agree with. Now, there's variance, of course, depending on where you live and who you live by. But we need to reckon with the radicalness of our society today. It's not that everybody is, is leading some kind of idolatrous worship ceremony at all times or something like that. I want to be clear. There's still a lot of Christians in this country, of course. Uh, there are different religious groups out there beyond the true church uh, who at least believe in some form of virtue and morality, though they, they are not following the true God. Nonetheless, there is a whole lot of neo-paganism around us. And it, it, it advances the lies, lie atop lie atop lie, that we were just talking about. What's the alternative? The alternative is this. In divine design, there is a creator. <laughs> That's not a lie. That's the truth. There is divine design. There's an order to creation. There is male and female because God made it so. There is a script for sexuality, for young men and young women to follow. There is a God-designed family with a father, a mother, and children as God leads. There is the need to protect and care for children. There is a Savior and a Lord to worship. And finally, there is a judge of evil. So, in concluding our time together this weekend for the conference end of things, what is our battle plan? And yes, that is a carefully chosen phrase. We do not battle against flesh and blood. We're not seeking to win any kind of culture war ultimately. We are battling against principalities and powers in the cosmos. What is our plan? I'm the one who said just a few minutes ago we need a plan. What's our plan? Eight parts and then we're done. First. We must tell the truth about human sin. These are going to be quick. We have to tell the truth about human sin. We're not softening sin. People need to come into our assemblies, and they need to hear how depraved depravity is. Let depravity be depraved. Let people understand its darkness. Some of the most impactful works of literature, you think of Flannery O'Connor, for example, not writing from an evangelical standpoint, but nonetheless, you read A Good Man is Hard to Find, for example. You read great works of literature, and you are confronted with depravity. And depravity is what, is what wakes people up. It's what jostles them out of the normal routines where they just keep on trucking through ordinary life. People need to hear about human sin. Churches should preach about sin. Second, we need to detail the devastating consequences of neo-paganism. We need to unpack the consequences of lie upon lie upon lie. I don't know how long this lasts. How long does this last? How long can a society sustain itself when it teaches that there is no creator, there is no divine design, there is no male nor female, and so on and so forth, which is what we are shifting toward. We are making an awkward transition right now from a kind of traditional, religious, Christian-influenced worldview in America to a neo-pagan one. How long does this last? I have no idea. The Roman Empire crashed and burned. England is altogether changed. 
in our time. Societies, civilizations rise and fall. How long does this last? I don't know. But I know that while we have time, we need to make clear just how broken this is in order that we will, again, awaken people out of this. I don't think we can probably take back America in some form, whether we have a Republican president or not. I think there will be benefits from that. Don't misunderstand me. And I want that. I pray for that. Nonetheless, even if we get that, even if we get six Republican presidents in a row against all the odds, we will still be in very much increasingly a neo-pagan order. And we have to detail the brokenness of that. Third, in our pulpits, we have to show how Christianity is distinct from neo-paganism. The pastor has this weight upon his shoulders. Do not misunderstand me. He has to set the tone. He has to lead the charge into battle against neo-paganism. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are trying to take his people captive, that are trying to get his young people to believe that if they follow the lusts of their flesh, they will be lastingly happy and they can leave the church in the rearview mirror. He has to lead in this. He has to lead in forming a culture of discipleship. He has to lead, he and the elders together have to lead in making clear how to have a strong godly marriage. People have no idea. These things we've been talking about, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, people have no idea about this stuff. People who might look like they do. They might smile and nod. They might come and get the training. They might, I'm not mocking them, they might really want to do this. But even as they receive your teaching, there's a pretty decent chance they weren't trained in this. Very few people were trained in these realities in a godly, loving way. That's what the church is for. That's what the church is for. But it all begins with a pulpit that shows the antithesis, the distinction between Christianity, Christ, and the world. It doesn't start with a church and a pulpit that tries to make the case for the respectability of Christianity, that Christianity is really close to the culture, and Christianity has the same priorities as the culture, and it can use all the same terms, and it can even use and adapt worldly systems and philosophies and kind of get into the system and work within it. No. That will, create, that will create a Christianity that is trafficking off of the lie that we have exchanged the truth for. We don't need to do this whole respectability project. Cancel it. Cancel it. Begin the project of showing in love, not in anger, but in love, how Christianity is distinct from the world. Are there shared terms? Are there shared concerns at some level, contact points between Christianity and ungodly systems? Yes, there are. There are. But the apostles and the early church in Scripture are not, and Jesus, are not doing this project that a lot of us are doing and a lot of our peers want to do, where we play down the rough edges of biblical doctrine. We stop talking about the hard doctrines. We, we really focus on 
how like the world we are, and we thus establish cultural respectability. And once we establish cultural respectability, once people like us and see how reasonable we are and thoughtful we are, then we'll win them to Christ. You know who I actually think is being one in that scenario? The church is being one to the world. We are seeking to be the church winning the world. That's our battle plan. Our battle plan is not, therefore, to engage on Facebook and show people that Christianity is just like neo-pagan thought. It's to show in love that Christianity is distinct from it. Fourth, therefore, we need churches full of healthy, strong marriages and families. It's not to the exclusion at all of single people who have the gift of celibacy and according to 1 Corinthians 7, have a clear role in the kingdom and have a strong opportunity to display and demonstrate that being married does not make you a complete person. Knowing Jesus Christ is that alone which saves. Single people have a real chance to show that. Nonetheless, churches need to be full of strong marriages and families. And churches need to give tremendous effort and attention to strengthening marriages and families. Discipling, training sessions, reading good books together, taking out, uh, you know, a, a, young, a young father being taken out to Starbucks by an older father or whatever and talking through challenges and vice versa with an older wife and a younger wife and so on and so forth. When you have a church full of strong marriages and families, that church will pulse and vibrate with the truthfulness and the goodness of the biblical worldview. Fifth, we need Christians who see themselves as salt and light, Matthew 5, and who plunge into the public square to oppose evil and witness to unbelievers. I do not believe in this somewhat popular view that either we are losing our mind with involvement in the world, or we are totally separate just being the church and almost indifferent to the world. I think the church is paramount for us, and we've got, we've got everything staked on the fate of the local church in eternity. But I also believe that while we're here, we're called to be salt and light, and we're fighting. We're fighting for truth. We're fighting for the unborn. We're fighting for a strong country. We're doing everything we can. I don't think it's an either or. I don't think it's either care about America or love Christ church. I think it's actually both. Rightly balanced, rightly prioritized. And I think a lot of those political issues are not conscience issues, as I said a few minutes ago, but are discipleship issues. If a lot of young evangelicals in particular here that they can be pro-life or they can be pro-choice. That is not a failure of conscience issue teaching. That is a failure of discipleship. And I fear that we are in way worse territory on this count than I even know. I fear that there are a good number of pastors who are just saying, if it's a controversial issue, it's a conscience issue. Where in reality, friends, yes, there are finer points to sort out. And yes, there are some points we're going to have with disagreement on different political matters, certainly. But a lot of these issues, at the very least, are discipleship issues. 
though they're not being framed that way, even by voices many of us would respect, have respected in years past. And if that trend continues of changing discipleship issues, in other words, these are matters of conviction and these are matters of conviction, excuse me. If that trend continues of changing them to conscience issues, jump balls, you can believe whatever you want, that is a, that is a setup for disaster in our churches. I would very much encourage you to push against that, whether you are in leadership or not, whatever level in the church you're at. Sixth, we need a specific focus on children. We're almost done. Both our own and others. We need to do everything we can to protect children. That's a major part of the church's witness, to protect children. It's not just to protect ourselves. We should protect children in this society. If there's drag queen story hour at your local public library, raise your voice. Don't take it lying down. Can you, can you uncinify the culture? No, you can't. You may lose and lose and lose and lose. Don't take it lying down. You're not fighting flesh and blood, ultimately. I've now repeated that three times. But you are in this place for this time. And you should seek to be a witness where evil flourishes and where children are being preyed upon. And this isn't something for the older generation alone that might be more politically inclined or something like this. This is for the whole church. And I think churches should be a witness along these lines. Not so much telling people what candidate to vote for. I don't mean that. But if there is a drag queen story hour a mile or two from you, I would think very hard about what your church can do. Not just that, but where are children being preyed upon? Where are they being set up to be unprotected. Who will speak for them? They don't really have a voice, do they? Who will protect them? Halloween in my neighborhood, I was walking around with my kids and uh, they were dressed up, you know, trick-or-treating and uh, came across a neighbor. I don't know this person well, but clearly drunk with a two-year-old girl right beside her, just dr almost falling over drunk. I tried to engage her. It didn't really work. She left. She did go home and sit down. I saw her a few minutes later. I, I don't, we're not close to them. We don't know them well, so it, it would have been a bit of a difficult situation, probably created some sort of very bad thing on Halloween night. Okay, I digress. Uh, it was a situation for me, though, where I realized in a terrible way this little girl her mom is drunk at 6 p.m. What is this little girl experiencing? What is this home like? Now, look, the world has always been fallen since Adam's fall, but friends, very few people are around to protect children. Do what you can. Fight. Fight while there is time. Seventh, we need to go hard after our youth as they get older. We need to go hard after them. Speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. They're not incidentally be going to become a Christian. It's only going to be with intention and focus and effort and pushing through on our part as fathers and mothers, tiredness, exhaustion even, taking the time to have the conversations with them, not just mindlessly you know, throwing on entertainment. Of course, we have those moments where we relax with them, yes, but then we take time to cultivate their heart, to disciple them. 
We've got to go after them. If we don't go after them, the world will. The world will. This isn't about ultimately politics or something like this. This is about ultimately eternity. Those are the stakes. Eighth and finally, we need to pray that the Lord will give renewal to his church, his compromised church, and revival to this world, this evil world. It's not all as bad as it could be, and yet the days are low. We need to pray for renewal in the church, and we need to pray for revival in the world. Revival, not, by the way, ultimately so that our surroundings will get better. That may well happen. But so that people get saved and go to heaven and then live forever with God in the new heavens and new earth. Let me conclude with this. It's so easy for you not <laughs> to focus on the end of things. We, we lose sight of what's coming. But I want you to remember that at all times as you fight for truth in this world, there is a great cloud of witnesses. If you just lift your eyes up a little, you can almost see them. You can almost see the saints of Hebrews 11. You can almost see martyrs of days past. You can almost see Jim Elliot, who died on the mission field to tell people about Jesus. You can almost see the Reformation Anabaptist martyrs who were crushed and drowned for believing in believers' baptism. You can almost see those in the 16th century who were led to a stake in the center of London and burned for being Protestant. If you feel like this is difficult work, and it is, resolve. Resolve not just to focus on these biblical truths, but to lift your eyes and remember that many have gone before and many have walked this narrow way and many have paid a greater price than you and I may even have to pay. And they were faithful. They were faithful into the end. Let's pray that we'll be faithful into the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these saints. Thank you for this time with them. I pray that they would be encouraged and built up. I pray, Lord, that as we have a lot on the table, as we have many truths to teach and discipleship to foster, I pray, Lord, that we'll lift our eyes and recognize that there is a great and impossibly beautiful reward coming for all who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and that you love to welcome your children home. In this confidence, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.